everyone, and welcome to our Enenco podcast. I'm Beth Goodwin, Senior Account Manager and NHS Specialist at Enenco, and I'm joined today by David Oliver, who's our Technical Product and Insight Manager. Hi, David. Hi, Beth. So um, today we're going to be talking about heat decarbonisation plans, or HDPs for short, specifically the intended purpose of a heat decarbonisation plan, what's required of you as a trust and why you need it, and the benefits of a heat decarbonisation plan in relation to your overall sustainability goals. There's a lot to cover. So in addition to this podcast, we do have a published blog on the Enenco website, which provides an extra level of detail as to what we're discussing today. So please do go and have a look at that as a pair. We'll include a link in the description of this podcast. We're going to start with a bit of a refresher on where the NHS is with its decarbonisation journey. And I'm going to pass over now to David, who's going to take you through that. Over to you, David. Thanks, Beth. So as you're probably aware, in 2020, NHS England set out ambitious goals for decarbonisation in the report titled Delivering a Net Zero National Health Service. Now, this requires the NHS to achieve a net zero carbon footprint by 2040 and what's called the Carbon Footprint Plus by 2045, which includes supply chain. Uh, This presents many challenges for trusts, many of which are outside the control of the Estates Department. Um, On a previous podcast, we've covered green plans and how these encompass all areas of trust operations, not just the Estates functions. However, the heat decarbonisation plan is one of the important parts of a net zero carbon strategy that will be owned by the Estates team. So considering the overall carbon footprint of a trust, Let's have a quick look at some of the emissions that fall within the remit of the Estates Department. Now, the first one I've got is electricity use. And actually, this is going to be the easiest one to mitigate because all the electricity purchased from the NHS from the 1st of April should be 100% renewable. So it will be counted as zero carbon. This next item is natural gas, mainly used for heating, but also sometimes used for CHPs. Then you've got fuel for transportation. Uh, greenhouse gas emissions from refrigerants using chillers and so on, uh, waste and water. Now, in this podcast, we're going to be covering the reduction in gas usage only, and more specifically about the use of gas in providing heating. We'll be talking about the way that a a heat decarbonisation plan will help you to understand what your site will need to do to achieve net zero carbon heating, and indeed whether that's actually practical or possible. Converting a large hospital to low or zero carbon heating will cost tens of millions of pounds. So it's worth investing in a long-term strategy to avoid unnecessary costs along the way. When we talk about low or zero carbon heating, we know that current technologies will steer us towards heat pumps, most likely air source heat pumps. However, we should also remember that the renewables and sustainability world is evolving quickly. And it's possible that other solutions such as low carbon fuels, for example, hydrogen, may offer viable alternatives before we reach the 2040 deadline. We should also notice that air source heat pumps become less efficient and have a lower rating as the outside air temperature falls. This means that a heat system designed to provide sufficient heating for the coldest day will be significantly oversized for the rest of the year. And the optimum solution may actually be uh, some sort of hybrid system involving both heat pumps and natural gas heating to meet peak demands and possibly also to provide backup And for the small amount of gas that will be used, that might be dealt with, for example, by carbon offsetting. Thanks, David. I think that's a key one, isn't it, is that the NHS does still need to have uh, backup and security of heat. So we have to make sure that that's considered as part of a plan, don't we? We do, yes. 
Great. So, I mean, as you've mentioned, we've previously focused on wide scope sustainability um, based on the whole of the NHS carbon footprint and touching a little on the footprint plus as defined in the document. So many of you are finalising or working on developing your green plans. And it's important to understand how a heat decarbonisation plan fits into that picture. So I'll give you just an overview. A green plan is a statement of what you will do in the next five years to make your trust more sustainable as a whole. So it's broad scope and short term. A heat decarbonisation plan, by contrast, is a long term outline strategy to achieve an end goal of net zero by 2040, but only specifically around the emissions from heat, which is just one component of the NHS carbon footprint. The two should align and they should complement each other. So your heat decarbonisation plan would inform your goals around building energy carbon reduction, which sit within your green plan. So if you don't have a heat heat decarbonisation plan, a good target for your green plan for this year would be to create one for all sites. Um, And I'm going to hand over to David now to talk about the purpose of an HDP um, and the Salix requirements. Thanks, Beth. So... Salix is probably the reason that heat decarbonisation plans have come to your attention. Salix has, sorry, Salix has recognised the need for such plans, and in the recent public sector decarbonisation scheme, many of the grants awarded were conditional on an HDP being produced before the end of September this year. So Salix put together a brief guidance on what this plan should include, and we'll take you through the same steps, but we'll also recommend other things that we believe should have been included in those plans. So the heat decarbonisation plan, as defined by Salix, is a good starting point for an organisation to plan how it intends to replace fossil fuel reliant heating systems with low carbon alternatives, for example, heat pumps. So the HDP will define the current state of the organisation's energy use and its plan for reducing and or decarbonising. And the guidance also covers the following headings, buildings, resources, energy efficiency projects, heat networks, electrical capacity, evidence packs, planning, risks and opportunities. So we're going to talk about those in more detail in the accompanying blog on our website. Thanks, David. And I think at this point, it's worth noting that the Salix guidance has been put together for all public sector organisations, and it is just an overview. So it's a good starting point, but it's worth considering what the NHS actually needs so that you're getting a benefit from this piece of work. Many NHS trusts have got a really aged estate. Um, And if you look at the recent ERIC return data, 59% of structures in the NHS were built pre-1994 and 14% were earlier than 1948. So construction techniques, materials, legislative requirements have changed a huge amount in the last couple of decades. And facilities managers and estate departments are constantly battling with the challenge of bringing these aged buildings up to modern day standards. You've got many sites that are still running steam systems. Um, And there are issues with plant space availability, vent, pipework sizing. And this is before backlog maintenance and aged plant is considered. Trusts have often approached this work in quite an ad hoc manner based on failures because of the budgets that are available. So trusts will need a strategic approach to the sites with a plan for getting the most value from your spend and to avoid any duplicate spending. The NHS net zero target for 2040 and the stretch goal of 2028 to 2032, which feels like it's only a minute away, of 80% carbon footprint reduction, it's not going to happen without a strategy to achieve it. And for most trusts, building energy is a large proportion of your carbon footprint. 
And heating by gas may actually be over 50% of your total carbon footprint as defined in the NHS document. Reasons for this, centralised CHP, which has been financially beneficial to install and run, um, it might have to be removed in the future and your trust needs to prepare ahead of time. You need to understand the options that are going to be available to you to reach the net zero targets on heat so that a bold decision on the strategy can be made. You need an understanding of the risks to that strategy, the cost implications. Clearly, if you're moving to electric heating, there's going to be costs associated with that. You also need to understand this in the context of your projections about changing patient profiles and numbers and in relation to the local capacity on your network and other electricity demands you're going to have. We all know that increased technology means there's actually more electricity demand from a hospital, even within the same patient profile. Um, but you're also going to have things like EV charge points to consider. And finally, as we noted at the start of the podcast, if you're starting on a journey that's going to potentially cost tens of millions of pounds to complete, it's crucial that that journey is planned and you aren't spending a year to de-steam and then the next year or five years time, more likely, needing to replace the new pipework again, causing disruptions to the trust due to it not being suitable for a lower temperature system. Yeah, so building on the points that Beth just made, the Salix guidance on what's included at HDP is a good starting point. But to more fully meet your needs, we recommend that your HDP should cover some additional items. Now, the first thing we would suggest is you put in uh, a starting point about the NHS targets. And, and this sets a context for the people who will be reading and agreeing to sign up to the HDP. Secondly, Salix asked for building assessments, but we believe the assessment should actually be surveys carried out by skilled energy assessors. Then for things like capacity, electrical capacity available, we think you should also include what you think the capacity requirements will be from EV charging points because that needs to be factored in as well. Then when you start looking at options, the plan should look at multiple options and you, you look at those to see whether you can achieve the 2040 targets, whether you can also achieve the 2030 stretch goals. But also you need to have the idea of second options because as I said right at the very beginning, things could change. You could find, for example, in the 2030s that hydrogen starts becoming more available and cheaper as a fuel. And it may be that you have to actually change your plans in the 2030s or you may want, want to change your plans. So having those multiple options available to you is always useful so you can see how to transition from one option to the other. Now, there should also be an interim report of operation, of, sorry, of options for consideration and a selection of the agreed strategy to start with, but obviously with that flexibility in mind. And then you need to look at the phasing of that work. You know, you're not going to be doing it one piece at a time over 10 years. You'll probably be doing enabling works over the first five years and then actually implementing projects at the right time. And that right time may be defined by scheduled refurbishment work, or it may be defined by changes of legislation. And then finally, you need to be looking at things like uh, offsetting. So if you do plan to do carbon offsetting to meet your targets, you need to be tracking the cost of carbon and seeing whether that's going to be the most practical and cost-effective methodology. Yeah, David, um, just a note here while we've got everyone on, we are planning to do a podcast dedicated to carbon costs and offsetting and all the related things. So I think it's worth going away uh, and putting that to one side for a moment so that we can come back and give you some detail on that because offsetting in the public sector, oh my God, what a minefield. <laughs> so now we've covered our recommendations for what should make up a heat decarbonisation plan, 
I'm going to talk you through the likely outcomes from the plan. You know, what we need, what will we know at the end of the process? So, firstly, you'll have feedback from the site surveys, and these may present opportunities for short-term energy savings. And any short-term energy savings are likely to be at fairly low capital cost, and they can actually help to fund future work and achieve interim targets. Then you need to find out when will I need to de-steam. So if you have a steam system, it does seem inevitable that you will have to de-steam at some point. And this work should help you to identify when that might occur. Um, then can I switch to electric heating in the future and what the cost impact of the trust be? So as best mentioned before, you may have to switch off a CHP, but also this question about electrical capacity is very important. It may not be possible for you to actually get enough electrical capacity to do fully electric heating, in which case you may be forced to look at other options. And one of those options, for example, might be hydrogen. So the outcome from this report may be to actually determine at what point you'll need to be looking at alternative fuels or carbon offsetting, or even more radical solutions, which could even involve moving some services off-site. Then it should tell you, will you need to apply for upgrades to the electrical supply? So I just mentioned that there might not be enough electrical supply available, but the other option, of course, is to go back to your DNO and say, can I have an upgrade, please? And if he says, yes, but it's going to cost you a million pounds, that may still be a good outcome. And there are also changes coming along, probably 2023 or 2024, which will actually change the way that the DNOs cost upgrades. So it may actually be that in the future, you'll find this a bit cheaper than you do at the moment. The next question or the next answer, hopefully, is to understand the milestones and the interim goals in the plan. And as I said before, they may be based on schedule refurbishments of the sites or new builds. Uh, they may be scheduled to coincide with the replacements of CHPs, or it may be to do with things like change of legislation. And finally, the document should present uh, a clear indication of what the risks are. And obviously, they could include things like lack of funding, uh, but also higher energy costs, and also things like HTMs, which currently are, for example, increasing the amount of ventilation you need on the sites. Great. So now you've got your plan, which hopefully has answered all of those questions, um, and you've got a set of outcomes from that analysis. It's worth looking at what comes next, um, because this is a continuous sustainability journey, um, and you should have next steps and actions off the back of your heat decarbonisation plan. Um, thankfully, as a result of doing your HDP, your next steps will be much clearer and structured, and they'll be specific to each trust. However, I've put a few key generalisations here so you know where it's likely to go. Um, so a common next step may be to look to model your strategy, looking at the thermodynamic and hydraulic system and creating models of it and how it should change over time in more detail. So that kind of modelling generally will allow you to consider changes in the control and operation of the existing heating to optimise return temperatures and maximise your heating efficiency. And that often finds great cost and carbon paybacks during this phase to help reduce your demand for heat. And reducing demand really has to come first. Exploring opportunities for gradual incorporation of your low zero carbon heating into the existing network. So seeing where you're going to start, which plant would be optimal to remove first and to change out or whether it might actually be that a pipework project is first. And then it will also illustrate the end goal for the system. So you would have a model of your system as it should look in 2040 based on the end goal of your plan. So you know where you're going. 
So another complementary step might be to undertake more detailed efficiency surveying inside particular buildings, um, develop proposals with paybacks for particular projects that you want to undertake immediately. And again, in this case, you're probably looking for things that are both cost and carbon wins. So you're looking for things that are going to help you to reduce your demand and bank some savings. And then you'll definitely need to make sure that any projects that you undertake are monitored for their performance. So you're going to want to be using IPMVP standards and ensuring that your projected savings are achieved. So in summary, you might only be looking into heat decarbonisation plans due to Salix requiring one. However, we believe it's in the interests of all trusts to actually consider how this meets their needs and make sure that the work fits what you actually want and create the plan for your estate as soon as possible to help set out your roadmap for this key area of your carbon footprint. Whilst we've gone through our recommended scope here today, a heat decarbonisation plan should be designed to your own trust's individual needs. You may have areas where you already have the necessary information, or you may wish to explore a particular area in more detail, such as including electric vehicle charging strategy as part of the work. One size does not fit all. Absolutely. And that's a really good point. I think it's also important to say that if you only look five years ahead using your green plan, then there's a real risk that short to medium term measures will be taken that will then subsequently need to be decommissioned to achieve the 2040 goals, which results in a waste of public money and an increased disruption to your site. So remember the old adage, if you fail to plan, you're planning to fail. Um, We hope you found the podcast really helpful. If you'd like to discuss anything we've covered today, please send an email to inquiries at inenco.com or go and have a look at the blog for more information. The link is in the description. And if you'd like to listen to the previous podcasts and subscribe to future episodes, please go to inenco.com forward slash the Inenco podcast. So thanks for your input as always, David. And thank you all for listening. Thank you.